Good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to the LSE for this evening's event. My name is Nigel Dodd, and I'm Professor of Sociology here at the LSE and Editor-in-Chief of the British Journal of Sociology. It's my great pleasure to be chairing the annual British Journal of Sociology lecture for 2019. This event has been running for more than a decade now, with a series of distinguished speakers who have set out their own vision of the most significant questions and debates within the discipline. Each lecture is usually published in the journal subsequent March or June issue. I think we're going to go for June with this one, uh, with a set of responses to it by other scholars. One of the central aims of the lecture is to stimulate inquiry into the foundations and scope of the discipline and to offer the speaker an opportunity to lay a marker down and discuss what they believe to be the most interesting and pressing questions that we should be tackling in sociology today. I'm delighted to say that this year's speaker is Professor Marion Foucault. Marion is Professor of Sociology at the University of California at Berkeley. She received her PhD from Harvard University in 2000 and taught at New York University and Princeton University before joining the Berkeley Sociology Department in 2003. A comparative sociologist by training and taste, She's interested in variations in economic and political knowledge and practice across nations. Her first book, Economists and Societies, explored the distinctive character of the discipline and profession of economics in three countries. A second book, The Ordinal Society, which she'll co-author with Kieran Healy, is under contract. This book investigates new forms of social stratification and morality in the digital economy. Her other recent research focuses on the valuation of nature in comparative perspective, the moral regulation of states, the comparative study of political organization, the microsociology of courtroom exchanges, the sociology of economics, and the politics of wine classifications in France and the United States. A final book-length project, Measure for Measure, Social Ontologies of Classification, will examine the cultural and institutional logic of what we may call national classificatory styles across a range of empirical domains. As this list suggests, Marion is a sociologist of tremendous range and variety. If anyone is wondering what holds all of those different projects in her work together, she has expressed herself quite brilliantly, I think, in an interview, and I'll quote. She says, quite simply, understanding the world supposes that we understand the lenses that we apply to the world and how these lenses vary over time. Roughly, that's Foucault. Across societies, roughly, that's Durkheim and Mauss, but also Tocqueville, and depending on people's social situations, roughly, that's Bourdieu, but also, in a different way, it's Goffman. We can study these lenses in, for instance, language, the things we say and those we don't, in institutional rules and divisions, the things we allow implicitly or explicitly and those we don't, and in practices, the things we do and those we don't. Finally, classification is closely connected to the question of moral valuation. Dividing the world into categories almost inevitably means arranging the categories into a hierarchy. So the study of classification systems is fundamentally the study of social order. So there you have it. Marion is also an associate fellow of the Max Planck Sion Po Center on coping with instability in market societies and a past president of the Society for the Advancement of Socioeconomics. When I asked my LSE colleague and fellow BGS editor Rebecca Elliott for her impressions of Marion, she co-supervised Rebecca's PhD, Rebecca replied, you might mention that Marion has won awards from Berkeley for her mentorship of graduate students. She is celebrated for being both rigorous and kind, a combination that cannot be taken for granted in today's academy. I couldn't agree more. And so we come to today's lecture. Marion's topic is ordinal citizenship. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is LSE. BJS. Uh, super imaginative, aren't we? Uh, I would ask you to please, though, put your phones on silent so as not to disrupt Marion at work. 
As usual after the lecture, there will be a chance for you to put your questions to Marion, so please, let's now welcome Marion Foucard to the podium. Thank you very much for this generous introduction, Nigel, and thank you for inviting me to uh, give this lecture. It's a great, uh, great honor. Um, I have to stand here because if I go here, nobody will see me. <laughs> very, I am very petite. So, the expansion of social citizenship in the 20th century mitigated the brute effects of economic inequality in people's lives. The institutionalization of social rights and entitlement programs recognized that access to the life of a civilized being, to use T.H. Marshall's quaint phrase, should not depend on wealth only. To be sure, the process was incomplete, stigmatizing, and often brutal, particularly for the poor. Still, the reliable provision of education, disaster aid, and social insurance turned into one of the main raison d'etre and functions of governments throughout the world, while also giving them the authority to demand duties and sacrifices from the newly constituted citizenry in return. These very facts, however, also made social rights suspect. Unlike civil and political rights, socioeconomic rights entertained a torturous relationship to liberal theory. Some accused them of undermining the abstract idea of the natural rights of the individual to, quote, absolute freedom from the state, unquote. But others replied that natural freedom means nothing if it boils down to the freedom to live a wretched, inhuman life. To the extent that human liberty or the capability to function as a full member of society is a concrete, practical achievement, social rights are essential to it. Now, as long as the state was, the prim was taken to be the primary provider of social rights, these two positions seemed irreconcilable. The erosion of this core assumption has brought them to to closer together, however. The language of citizenship in the 21st century is a strange melding of self-sufficiency and capability, of autonomy and inclusion. As Fraser and Gordon note, citizenship is a weighty, monumental, humanist word surrounded by an aura of dignity. This is perhaps why its domain of application has broadened so much to the point of being overextended. Every aspect of people's lives, it seems, is now the locus of interior citizenship claims, that is, claims of, about the equal ability to participate in some activity that is seen as essential to one's functioning as a member of society. The halo of citizenship now encompasses not only one's status as a member of a political legal community, but also as a worker, as a consumer, as a cultural other, as a biological and sexual being. Thus, for instance, international economic organizations, central banks, and financial experts strive to expand financial citizenship by opening up credit access to populations that were previously excluded from it, typically marginalized racial groups, women, and the poor. Early internet evangelists, education specialists, and tech companies have pitched the economic, political, and social benefits of internet access and argued that bridging the digital divide is an essential component of citizenship in the information age. And the vocabulary of citizenship and rights now proliferates pretty much everywhere else. Two, for instance, in the domains of health, biology, culture, and sex, among others. This new iteration of citizenship talk is indeed everywhere by now. Uh, Kimlika and Norman call it citizenship as desirable activity. It differs from the older conception in two crucial ways. First, Rather than an all-absorbing social state that supports generic entitlements and protections, in principle if not in practice, citizenship is increasingly disaggregated into a set of positions on multiple dimensions of inclusion, which are all presented as intrinsically beneficial. Second, 
Its, act, its realization depends on the active engagement of markets and corporations rather than on keeping them at arm's length. This engagement has been appealing politically because it satisfies, at least nominally, liberalism's embrace of the sovereign empowered individual as expressed in two key cultural idioms of democracy, equality of opportunity on the one hand and the freedom to live one's life as one sees fit. I didn't, I didn't check how we do the slides. <laughs> I don't know how we do the slides. I think we've got a... <laughs> I forgot to be... We forgot to... There we go. <laughs> so, and the two key cultural idioms of democracy, uh, equality of opportunity and the freedom to live one's life as one sees fit. That, in the nutshell, um, is, uh, you know, is sort of the meaning of the experience ad behind me, which I found yesterday in the tube. So you get the primer you know, of it. But as I will show, you know, it has created a machinery that has transformed the meaning of citizenship. So, I guess I just go to the next one. So what does the life of a civilized being, again to use Marshall's phrase, mean today? Let me take two examples. First, credit. From the 1790s onwards uh, in the United States, and I'll, a lot of my examples unfortunately come from the years because it is what I know best. But from the 1790s onwards, federal and state governments in, in America supported the expansion of credit markets to manage economic opportunity in a large and deeply divided land. By the 1920s, progressive foundations and unions also promoted credit as socially beneficial and empowering. Still, large swaths of the population were excluded or left at the mercy of predatory lenders. By the mid-1960s, Louise Hyman writes, quote, to be denied credit when beyond an economic inconvenience. Credit access cut to the core of what it meant to be an affluent, responsible adult in post-war America, end quote. It took fierce political struggles by racial minorities fighting against usurious exploitations in um, minority neighborhoods, and by feminist organizations fighting against the, impos the imposition of marital dependency for credit to finally overflow the boundaries of the white male population. The legal battle that won the uh, argument revolved around equality of treatment and the ability to participate fully in economic life. In other words, the expansion of credit in post-war America had many of the hallmarks of a hard-fought social right. Today, the ubiquity of credit cards indexes the natural and open-ended relationship that people throughout the Western world and beyond have with the financial system. It is important to point out that this relationship is essential not simply to the realization of people's social identity as consumers, but also to their status as full members of society. Those who stand outside of it, that is those you know, who do not have a so-called credit history, are often disadvantaged or even excluded from a whole range of normal activities, such as renting an apartment, applying for a job, or obtaining insurance. The ordinary citizen is incorporated into the financial system in quite mundane and concrete ways. Offers of private credit at variable rates arrive unsolicited in the mail. Payments can be conveniently arranged through digital devices from credit cards to electronic wallets, a topic that Nigel, of course, knows a lot about. Cash is awkward and seemingly passé. One's eligibility for access to various non-financial domain will naturally involve a credit check, as I just mentioned. So far uh, from protecting subjects from the vagaries of the market, status as an ordinary citizen actively enrolls them into it. The experience of this form of inclusion 
goes hand in hand with the politics of financial education so that the new financial citizen may dutifully face her responsibility. Reliance on credit is publicized as a protection against precisely those financial emergencies that Marshall thought called for the institutionalization of public forms of solidarity. It is also thought um, uh, to be less stigmatizing than these earlier forms of solidarity were. In practice, however, the opposite is often true. What Susan Soderbergh calls the debt-fair state often functions as an engine of dispossession. It takes advantage of vulnerability rather than alleviating it and works primarily to the benefit of the financial industry rather than the citizens it nominally serves. So that was my first example of living the life of a civilized being today. In the same way that living without a credit card is increasingly inconceivable, it is, is it possible today to live one's life outside of the reach of Google or LinkedIn or Facebook or to live without a laptop or tablet or smartphone within one's reach to the extent that all essential social activities have moved part partially online, being a full member of society implies that one also accepts to be incorporated bit by bit into the networked infrastructure of the internet. Private and public databases record our behavior at school, at work, and at home. In the global north, people ha have now, um, now think of uh, many privately uh, run digital services in the way that they want sort of public goods, that is, as critical pieces of the social infrastructure to which everyone should have a right of access. The reason for this belief, of course, is that so many of the core products of the digital economy, from search to social media, from mail to office tools, from games to self-tracking applications, come to us in the form of handsome handouts, often free or charge, or nearly so, and open to anyone with an internet connection or a cell phone. Of course, it's not really free of charge, as we know. <laughs> we'll get there. In the global south, this quasi-public logic often applies to the internet itself, even to hardware. Morgan Ames shows in her forthcoming book, The Charisma Machine, that a utopian vision of expanded educational opportunities inspired the project originating at MIT, at the MIT Media Lab, to outfit every child in the developing world with a small, sturdy, and cheap laptop. The project failed miserably, but the vision survives. Facebook's ambitious free basics project, for instance, aims to deliver internet service to populations in developing countries in the name of a right of individuals to connectivity understood as an essential social ingredient of a dignified and fulfilling life. The tech industry draws its legitimacy from the idea of citizenship, perhaps more than from any other institution. But it is a citizenship that bypasses the state and even often transcends national boundaries. Politically, the modern tech industry was born out of the promise to close the exclusion gap through the expansion of broadband and, and associated services and to do so, and I think it's important, in multiple domains at the same time. Its vision of the digital future was that of a gigantic inclusionary machine the politically marginal would be incorporated into the polity. The unknown would suddenly have a platform to showcase their creativity. The uneducated would discover opportunities to train themselves. The financially excluded would muster funding or credit. The jobless would find work. The entrepreneurial would innovate. The socially isolated would connect to the rest of the world Minorities of all kinds would finally feel empowered, and those in need of temporary assistance would be served by online campaigns of support. Last but not least, the state itself would be reorganized as a platform of digital services, a government 2.0, as Tim O'Reilly called it, more nimble, more efficient, and better able to reach underserved populations. No need for an educated citizenry the web provides everything there is to know 
while guaranteeing individuals' freedom in choosing what to learn and how. Even critics of these optimistic claims which are legion in the social sciences find it hard to downplay the real satisfactions that come with digital incorporation, from seamless and convenient life to expanded capabilities, from the right to participate to the extension of solidarity, from the irresistible, irresistible allure of self-exposure to that of voyeurism. It's important to remember that this regime of hypervisibility with which we live today arose with little resistance from us. We were guided instead by the fear of missing out and by the affirmative pleasures of individuation, of feeling as one of a kind, as the tube ad by the US data broker Experian that I showed you earlier proudly claims. You know, you are one of a kind and we are there to serve you. <laughs> so let me summarize the argument so far. I have suggested that demands for citizenship have been reoriented towards socio-technical systems that are most visibly, visibly dominated by private institutions, propped up, for sure, by various state encouragements and favorable laws. Financialization and digitization, and increasingly financialization cum digitization, have been construed as solutions to prob problems of opportunity, fairness, and occasionally solidarity in domains as varied as credit, education, jobs, politics, or healthcare. By doing so, however, these institutions have provided cover for the parallel disinvestment of the state from these areas. This process further fuels, of course, their own social necessity. Now, in the second part of my talk, I will show that these forms of inclusion have also nourished a new moral economy of citizenship. The reason is that any type of group expansion, if you remember your social theory, any inclusionary process is at the same time a differentiating one. That's not me saying, it's Georg Zimov. But as the development of social rights created new and consequential forms of stratification around welfare at the bottom and education at the top, the move toward financial and digital inclusiveness, inclusiveness is producing newly actionable social divisions, social duties, and forms of capital that shape people's life trajectories in multiple ways. <laughs> I told Nigel I have just four, four words on my slide. <laughs> the politics of citizenship in a liberal society is perennially a problem of overcoming exclusion and sustaining substantive inclusion and solidarity. So if we want to think clearly about the current transformation, it may actually be useful to go back in history to those earlier inclusionary episodes that sought to mitigate deeply entrenched forms of social disadvantage. Just as the exclusion of financial or digital citizenship is today brandished as a liberal panacea that will help people help themselves and possibly reshuffle social hierarchies by freeing up energies and innovation, the extension of social rights once affirmed that all lives should be guaranteed a modicum of economic welfare and security. The expansion of education, most characteristically, also supported the notion that everyone should have, to quote Marshall again, the right to share to the full in the social heritage. An educated citizenry was actually essential to supporting political rights and, social, and civil rights as well. But, as Marshall was very quick to point out, this major institutional transformation, the expansion of education, also had a profound effect on the social structure. The new rights created their own special divisions, separating uh, citizens according to their ability to do well through them. Post-war sociologists, of course, confirmed these insights over and over again in empirical studies. First, those who rely on social services to survive are stigmatized as morally deficient presumed to be lacking in grit and motivation, they were subjected to enhanced surveillance and forced to work. Second, the expansion of the right to education benefited the well-born much more than the common mass. It was both an effective social ladder 
and a particularly devious conduit for the recycling of old inequalities, a topic, of course, that the LSE knows a lot about. The children of the bourgeoisie, as it was then called, nobody talks about the bourgeoisie anymore, but, <laughs> uh, were not only the ones uh, getting the bulk of the new degrees and the better grades, but they also disproportionately got those degrees that paid the most in the labor market. Finally, just like the welfare-assisted suffered, quote again from Marshall, psychological class discrimination and crystallized into a morally inferior class, the educated tended to reproduce themselves and form a distinctly new axis of stratification. Pierre Bourdieu declared the institutionalization of a new form of capital, cultural capital. Randall Collins announced the advent of the credential society. A lot of people, you know, the new class um, was born that way. The ideological consequences were profound. Rather than disappearing, Economic and social differences could now legitimate themselves via the morally impeccable seal of a college diploma. Marshall had anticipated all of this when he couched a fundamental dilemma of liberalism in the following terms, quote, the right of the citizen is the right to, equal, to equality of opportunity. In essence, it is the equal right to display and develop differences or inequalities the equal right to be recognized as an equal, end quote. But no one, perhaps, was as biting as British sociologist and labor leader Michael Young, who in a futuristic satire published in 1958 described the rise of the meritocracy as a cruel liberal fantasy. As is by now well known, no matter how deep and detailed the measurement of merit might become Young predicted, it will always give birth to an aristocracy that will soon hoard resources, concentrate political power, and project onto those excluded from its ranks the belief that only they are to blame for their lack of success. In a later text that anticipates on a host of political and social developments of today, you know, from the rise of the 1% to the anti um, you know, who are caught like everybody uh, in an endless race for social esteem to the anti-democratic consequences of the new uh, philanthropy, Young blasted the sense of entitlement that a meritocratic system produces. Quote, if the rich and powerful were encouraged by the general culture to believe that they fully deserved all they had, how arrogant they could become and if they were convinced it was all for the common good, how ruthless in pursuing their own advantage, end quote. Ironically, the career of Young's own son, Toby, both at university and afterwards, bore out his father's prediction with a vengeance, <laughs> as indeed did Michael Young's own efforts to get him into Oxford. <laughs> Today, the sociologist's verdict on the meritocracy is more widely shared than ever. In the United States especially, statistics about stalled intergenerational mobility or widening health gaps between income groups show that the social elevators do not work anymore. Tales of moral bankruptcy and unfair advantage populate the radio podcast, the columns of newspapers, and the shelves of booksellers. And yet, the moral justifications may be crumbling but the institutions are resilient. If the system has caught a fever, it's a thermometer that must be broken. <laughs> Universities and corporations alike still claim their commitment to raising the most deserving of the overlooked, whatever that disadvantage may be. Merit, after all, is the only acceptable justification for inequality that liberalism knows, and so it digs its heels deeper and deeper. The failure of meritocratic institutions has brought two main corrective strategies. The first is a compensation for history called disadvantaged, institutionalized through diversity and inclusion programs. These strategies, which identify people through their membership in underprivileged groups, underrepresented minorities, first-generation students, people of diverse social backgrounds, do not always interact well with ordinal technologies of sorting individuals like grades and tests, which still appear for all their flaws more objective. 
But even there, even these tests and grades, to the extent that they depend on the subjective judgment of graders, are questionable today. Actually, at Berkeley, um, students will compare the grading curves of different teachers for the same course and pick the year when they take the semester when they take the class accordingly, you know, uh, depending on that. The second strategy, then, has been to double down on the more clearly quantifiable aspects of merit to push the frontier of commensuration upward further and further. The old meritocracy is moribund, long live the next one. For the first time in a long time, new prospects are on the horizon. Digital technologies have both enabled a broadening of economic and social incorporation and expanded the possibilities for classifying, sorting, slotting, and scaling people. New ways of measuring merit have sprung up out of these systems, from financial responsibility to social influence, from friendliness to punctuality, from physical fitness to uh, reliability. Both markets and states find themselves compelled to build up and exploit this efficient, proliferating, fine-grained knowledge in order to manage individual claims on resources and opportunities. Social inclusion, as we have seen, increasingly depends not only on being incorporated into these systems, but on behaving and performing according to their rules. In other words, on demonstrating merit within the system. Part three, ordinality. So, what does this mean in practice? Well, in practice, everyone has a duty to engage. In the same way that a student who never did their homework or showed up to class, even though smart, was likely to fail you know, uh, at their semester grade, increasingly actually, someone who never uses their credit card, even when managing their finances prudently, may find that their credit score is low. Information technology has magnified the ability of organizations to process large numbers of things and people in a short amount of time. However, even with sizable amounts of data, these systems often perform poorly, especially when dealing with human behavior. The injunction of engagement is, such, is thus first and foremost a technical demand. By increasing the amount of data available, engagement increases the accuracy of predictions and the efficiency of the sorting system. It also, of course, normalizes surveillance and standardizes behavioral expectations in the process of, and, and of course in the process, what it does is defines the duties of proper citizenship within each system. Design architectures then make these duties and expectations potent through cybernetic feedback loops that further reward and incorporate the active productive user. Every user-facing digital system, whether public or private, operates pretty much the same way. Access to services demands obligatory onboarding, surveillance, and long-lasting interaction. For instance, if you don't engage on Facebook or Instagram by posting or commenting and messaging others, or if others do not interact with your posts, your visibility to them and to the rest of Facebook diminishes quickly. Your rare contribution will disappear into the algorithmic vortex, curtailing your access to a full online social life. You know, people won't see you, simply. And uh, there's a beautiful book by uh, Tena Bucher about this. Similarly, your Uber driver ranks you on punctuality and friendliness, but Uber, the company, ranks you on your behavior within the system, from canceling too many rides to failing to provide feedback. Uber states on its website, quote, the rating system is designed to give mutual feedback. If you never rate your drivers, you may see your own rating form, end quote. The emerging literature on algorithmically managed social services shows, shows that they too are data hungry and demand regular checking into the system as part of a compliance regime. 
For instance, uh, it was reported recently in the news that Australia's welfare recipients who fail to meet their required activities receive demerit points that put them at risk of income support suspension. Close-up exposure has become a non-negotiable prerequisite of social integration across a wide range of public and private domains. Everyone is under observation. But of course, um, I think it's an important point, the moral threshold of surveillance and the coercive pressure to participate is higher for those populations who li whose lives depend on the extension of social solidarity. So what are the implications of this state of affairs for the way we think about citizenship? I think they are profound. Computers dwell in ordinality. In fact, we call them ordinateur in French. Mm -hmm. you know, it's about ordering. It's about, it's essentially a system of priorities. Much like social life, they organize the world by spewing out if we demanded priorities and cues. Digital hypervisibility and digitally based sorting processes are redefining the relevant categories by which the social process itself operates, the hierarchies that organize it, and the valuations that stand behind these hierarchies. As scores and rankings uh, proliferate, the prospects of inclusion become increasingly defined by one's position of, on some sort of ordinal scale both the ability to participate in various activities and the terms under which such participation takes place are scored in this way, a process that I have called elsewhere ordinalization. In the case of Uber, for instance, unfitting behavior is rated within the, uh, uh, sorry, unfitting, unfitting behavior as rated within the app leads to exclusion from the platform and that happens for both drivers and passengers. But once rating does not simply manage the boundary between inclusion and exclusion, it also shapes the terms of inclusion itself, such as how quickly one may find an available car or the kind of driver with whom one will be matched. Similarly, for all practical purposes, credit scores in the United States and elsewhere have become the most consequential instrument regulating at the conditions of financial citizenship, from the set of willing lenders to the size and price of credit to be obtained from them. No wonder, then, that credit scores, Uber ratings, and welfare demerit points are becoming causes of more concerns for people, for more concern for people. In human society, any priority order any queue or ranking system is also always a moral order. Or, as Barry Schwartz put it, an order of moral demand. Whatever the actual purpose, technologies of social commensuration and social sorting always end up producing standards of moral deservingness and social desirability. In joint work with uh, Kieran Healy, I have suggested that a new form of capital, call it Uber capital, or you can also call it Eigen capital, and I can explain Eigen later if you want. Um, but that's my, favorite, my preferred term. That this form of capital uh, arises from one's position and trajectory according to various scoring, grading, and ranking methods. Small, reputation-based meritocracies now pop up everywhere. Whereas, where one's position on the scoring scale becomes consequential for a whole range of life opportunities. Individuals are matched to the outcomes that the algorithms determine they deserve. Service or no service, better quality or lower quality service, price levels, fees, and penalties. And as with earlier forms of meritocracy, this one is likely to be experienced as morally right because the principle of one's exclusion or the, the principle of one's poor treatment by the system seems to reside entirely inside, within ourselves, within our, you know, in our present behavior and our past choices. Now, of course, um, China, 
I can't give a talk like this without talking very briefly about China, offers a particularly extreme example of the entanglement between digitization, financial inclusion, measured worth, and social citizenship. Following a series of ambitious projects by corporations and pilot studies by local authorities to predict trustworthiness, the government has recently rolled out a plan to Im implement a social credit score for every citizen that will, through public-private MOUs, regulate people's ability to access a wide range of public and private services. Things like broad broadband speed, public transportation, foreign uh, travel visas, social benefits, access to restaurants and hotels, elite restaurants and hotels, and possibly even the quality of schooling offered to a person's children. <coughs> this score is primarily anchored in one's history of payment and also one's history, uh, one's record of legal compliance. But of course, any, but it has other parts, as you probably know. You know, social media is, a, is an important one, social networks. Um, and also, any digital system connected to it presumably loops back into the scoring engine. But it's not, uh, you know, this is not uh, the only place where you find uh, this kind of thing. In the United States, the Department of Homeland Security stated in August 2019 that it would, under a new public charge rule, start using credit scores to play a role in determining the eligibility of immigrants applying for a green card or for U.S. citizenship. Okay, so the, again, the connection between scoring and citizenship. In this case, you know, national citizenship. In India, the process is reversed. The adoption of welfare e-payments supported by a national biometric database in the name of financial inclusion, again, we're back to, you know, the first part of the talk. Government effectiveness, so in the name of financial inclusion, government effectiveness and anti-corruption efforts is helping build the scoring infrastructure that now fuels the expansion of credit. Now, of course, you know, none of this is completely new. All societies, all groups, you know, draw more boundaries. You had Michel Labon not so long ago, right? Boundaries between the deserving and the undeserving, the capable and the incapable, the pure and uh, the impure. Throughout history, solidarity across social groups has been especially vulnerable to distinctions of gender, race, class, nationality, religion, and others. These divisions persist today, but as Yasmin Soisile pointed, pointed out in this very spot, and for this very journal some um, seven years ago, or eight years ago maybe, the liberal elaboration of personal autonomy and rights also demand, demands that more boundaries be drawn at the individual level. She shows how, in both the European Social Project and its immigrant integration agenda, the burden of solidarity has shifted from the state to the individual. Citizenship is granted to the individual who realizes her full potential as an individual and demonstrates general goodness in that role. But what happens when these and other components of good citizenship can be precisely tracked, aggregated, and reified in multiple ways? Actually, recent work by LSE's own Fabien Accominotti, and a paper with Daniel Tadman, suggests that beliefs in deservingness are reinforced by this kind of reification, that solidarity is harder to produce, and that distributional inequality is more easily legitimated. Now, the explosion um, in the availability of personal data has made individual more visible, and it has pushed the conventional social structures like gender, race, or class into the background. And of course, therein still lies the revolutionary promise 
of the ordinalization of citizenship. By recording behavior, and behavior only, you know, the ideas, new forms of inclusion will undermine ossified forms of social advantage, you know, rooted in those categories, and guarantee subjects equal opportunity within their domain. Again, let's go back to Marshall. He knew that equal opportunity is merely the equal right to display and develop differences. That is, in our case, the rise to a position within a new system of stratification. Furthermore, so that, that I've already said, but furthermore, since behavior, and, especially, and all social behavior, but especially financial behavior, which has been our core concern here all along, is often patterned and classified precisely along those categorical dimensions that the system pretends to ignore. This is, after all, what a social structure is, right? Ordinal citizenship often reproduces categorical inequalities too. But because this kind of statistical profiling, as opposed to, so say, racial or gender profiling, looks fairer, it is also politically more intractable. There's another problem, which is also that the statistical collectives that actually, you know, these kinds of technologies, scoring, actuarial technologies, uh, delineate are very difficult to mobilize because their nature is fluid and aggregative rather than categorically or voluntarily solidaristic. So the politics, we have not yet invented, right, the politics of, a, of a, the ordinal society um, where scoring matters for um, life outcomes. This problem today is rendered more potent by the fact that the data sensing practices, uh, I use the, that when I say data sensing, I use the term from Fleur Johns, that support the new classification engines have become tremendously complicated. Digital organizations, unlike analog ones, often work through a patchwork of sources public records, workplace records, grocery stores, records from grocery stores, courthouses, social services, Fitbit, social networks, web browsers, and much more. Rather than specific, uh, demanding specific kinds of inputs, new computing techniques have actually the ability to discover patterns and correlations with virtually no pre-established conceptions about data structure. So in a world of almost anything goes, where, to quote Louise Amour, quote, every minute and prosaic behavior, every aspect of a way of life potentially becomes a part of the classification, what the algorithm sees in the end, and especially how it sees, is impossible to fathom. Right? If your credit score is just an aggregation of a few variables, on which you have some, you know, grasp, you can work your way through it. Mm. But if it becomes aggregated through a whole range of sources, through these kinds of techniques, it becomes a lot harder. Since machine learning techniques are by nature opaque even to their own designers, populations have found that they have limited recourse against the decisions of actuarial robots and the private contractors that often oversee their operations. As machine learning techniques diffuse everywhere, institutions develop a new way of apprehending the social world, anchored in prospectively feeling the reality on the ground and recognizing opportunities and needs inductively. Such a regime senses, again from Fleur Jones, from the bottom up by paying attention rather than implementing its vision from the top down. It works probabilistically by identifying patterns and deviations from the norm in large data, set, that data sets, working through what Lisa Moore again calls a politics of possibility that visualizes unknown futures which are either feared or desired. In practice, this means that policy should work by positioning each not even each individual, but each individual, you know, each slice of individual, along the path to individual and collective preparedness, from walking more steps daily, 
to reporting suspicious threats, from inciting citizens to see themselves as unfolding financial, digital, and biological projects, to nudging them by means of ordinality and cybernetic feedback back toward the norm if they fail to do so. And thus, the means of a, the life, I'm sorry, the means to the life of a civilized being today may be found in the cultivation of a digitally mediated, deeply individuated, but also predictably civilized self. Now in practice, the political project uh, to realize this particular self may take uh, many different forms. Um, so one common solution, which is probably the one we are all very familiar with, uh, powered by behavioral economics uh, and market uh, designers, often lies in the use of choice architectures and incentives to govern behavior. You know, this is what you know, today, of course, uh, we govern by effects. Another solution relies on public and private coercion. In the city of Rongchen, China, a civil servant tells a journalist from Süddeutsche Zeitung who has come to inquire about his city's pioneering role in social credit. Quote, we want to civilize people, end quote. He proudly cites the founding document of the Office of Honesty of the city of Rongchen. Quote, allow the trustworthy to roam everywhere under heaven while making it hard for this, the discredited to take a single step, end quote. And finally, the third solution, there is the full abandonment of individual autonomy to a machine that knows you better than you know yourself. In a speculative video leaked to the online tech magazine, The Verge, the head of design at Google's moonshot unit, Nick Foster, envisions a world where every action is outsourced to a digital device. Google seamlessly takes over from you, organizing your life and designing products just for you, you know, just like, you know, that's why it was so good yesterday. You know, I was in the tube and I had to shut this. Just for you, from the ledger of your past actions, decisions, preferences, movement, and relationships. As the process goes on to include everyone across multiple generations, so it's a speculative video, <laughs> not reality. <laughs> the algorithm can also dwell on other people's ledgers to detect gaps in the data and produce the means to fill the gap, making the ledger richer. So in the video, the example is, you know, if the ledger doesn't have your weight, you know, the, uh, the algorithm will propose that you buy a scale. You know, it will actually design the scale for you, right, um, according to your taste, so that you can actually be satisfied with uh, the suggestion. In the final step, however, the ledger, a digital version of our DNA, is given purpose as the algorithm works to reinforce those behavioral traits that it finds desirable at the level of the species, so that actually future generations can benefit from the behaviors and decisions of their predecessors. So, you know, you, you, you modify um, the current generation so that, you know, and then you pass on the traits, um, the behavioral traits that are um, uh, most, uh, most desired. And the question is, you know, is this what sharing to the full in the social heritage means today? And I will leave you with that question. 